Hello, and welcome to New People, New Ways, a podcast in partnership with Fresh Expressions Florida and Fresh Expressions United Methodist that explores new ways of being church through the stories and insights of scholars and practitioners alike. I'm Piper Ramsey Sumner, and I'm a layperson and the cultivator of Fresh Expressions for the Florida Conference. And I'm Michael Adam Beck, the director of Fresh Expressions Florida and Fresh Expressions UM. And today we're joined by Reverend Brett DeHart. Brett is the senior pastor of Aldersgate United Methodist Church in Augusta, Georgia. He has pastored United Methodist congregations in North Georgia for 20 years. In each setting, community engagement and missional outreach increased. With a passion for reaching new people, churches he's pastored have launched messy churches, recovery churches, and dinner churches. And Brett and his wife have been married for 30 years and have two young adult children. Brett, thank you so much for being on today. Absolutely. My honor to be with you. Yeah, thanks for being here. I'm excited to, to hear more about the things that you're up to um, in Augusta, which is north of Atlanta. Is that right? We're actually east of Atlanta on the South east. Carolina border. And so, oh, okay, okay. Yeah, we're about... Uh, about two hours east of Atlanta. Okay. Okay. Very cool. Um, so the first question that we ask, who is Brett DeHart? Well, Michael stole most of it. So <laughs> he's already <laughs> told you, I think, a, a good bit of it. But uh, I am the son of two Floridians and uh, went to Florida State University, graduated there. Yay! Uh, <laughs> husband, father. Uh, pastor, uh, practitioner of uh, Fresh Expressions, Denver Church, Mesley Church, Recovery Church, all of those uh, things. And uh, also enjoy when I have the opportunity, uh, just trying to help other pastors and, and church leaders through either print resources or training, coaching, however I can be helpful. Yeah, so Brett, you, you have recently pastored larger congregations and um, you're also a practitioner of Fresh Expressions, so a true blended ecology person. Um, when did you first learn about the Fresh Expressions movement? Yeah, I think uh, I've been doing Fresh Expressions before I knew what they were. Uh, came out of the business world, first career. And so I've got a kind of an entrepreneurial streak in me and uh, just uh, had a, a real uh, I think, you know, God put upon my heart for evangelism and mission and those type of things. And so even though I was raised in a, a megachurch, uh, as it became a megachurch and uh, had that grounding uh, in, in youth and, and continued that into young adulthood, uh, I still, for whatever reason, uh, while I appreciate uh, what the inherited church brings to the table, I'm also not one of those who feels the necessity to protect it at all costs. So I've always been uh, open for the, the next thing or how are we going to uh, connect with people, uh, people that we aren't reaching. Uh, I came onto the scene in the early 2000s when kind of that whole mega church and attractional church type of thing was waning. And so the necessity was there. And uh, I think it matched up with my gifting. And, and so, you know, it's, it's been something where uh, I have tried in each of the settings I've been at 
sometimes with more grace than others. <laughs> but yeah, I've tried to, uh, to in ways, uh, continue and nurture what is there, uh, but not exclusively do that uh, without also uh, experimenting in different ways to, to try different things. Uh, Fresh Expressions as a concept, uh, probably the, the first time that, that I was introduced was probably through your books, Michael. I know you came and did a training in North Georgia, uh, probably 2016, 2017, maybe early 2017. And uh, the church that I was at, uh, we tried a few things. We were successful uh, with the dinner church uh, there. And then I came to my current setting in the middle uh, or what we had hoped was the middle. It really was the beginning of COVID. And uh, so uh, we had a little time on our hands. <laughs> and so we were able to experiment in some different ways with uh, Messy Church and eventually Recovery Church and now Single Parents. And so uh, you know, we've, uh, we've tried lots of things and some have been successful. So That's awesome. I, I think I remember actually that training. It's crazy how long it's been now, but uh, I was deep in enemy territory there in Athens, Georgia. Um, <laughs> not, yeah. Uh, anyway, I'll, I'll reserve my comments, but it's just uh, you, you as a pioneer, what we call in Fresh Expressions United Methodist Movement adventurers. Um, we just hear that story. Like I was wired for this. I was kind of experimenting, doing these things. Then I found out about this whole movement and this language and these frameworks and stuff that were helpful, but out of necessity, right? Like, oh yeah, folks aren't really coming to church. There's a lot of people in my community that church aren't connecting with. And you just saw that and you, you started, you know, um, iterating and experimenting, which is um, so good. And yeah, I'm, I'm really shocked sometimes how that does not seem like a, an instinctual, um, you know, kind of no brainer thing in a lot of inherited churches. And I wonder sometimes if it just comes down to like mental models and we're so stuck in one way of being church, but that was not your case. You were, you were not confined by that. Well, and I think some of that is, uh, you know, God puts different, uh, different, I guess, gifting and, and different things on different people's heart and different people are called to different things. I also think coming out of the business world where if you didn't meet your customer where they were, if you did not find ways to meet the needs of your customer, if you did not find the ways to, uh, to you know, make that sale, then you didn't eat. Uh, and so, uh, you know, from that, uh, that matter of necessity, uh, I think that that experience, uh, then, you know, we gave it to the church uh, then the natural questions were, you know, the, the people that are around us, the people we're trying to reach, uh, what do we need to, to do to connect with them and uh, to, to meet their needs, both the, their felt needs as well as their maybe real needs. Uh, and uh, so, you know, that, that came natural of uh, a little more willingness to try whatever it took uh, to, to achieve what we were trying to to get done there. Yeah. So I know 
um, both of you do, both of you have kind of churches where they become hubs of fresh expressions that kind of branch out. But then um, I don't know if it's true for you, Brett, but I think it is that you, I know with Michael, you host a lot of fresh expressions that kind of happen on the campus of the churches that you pastor. And that's not always the kind of typical fresh expressions model. So I wonder each of you could maybe talk about that. Like how, what kind of things have you found that have been difficult with that? Because a lot of the times the people that don't go to church have a reason that they don't walk through those doors. And so when you say, Hey, come to our church, this is slightly different, but it's the same building. It can still um, create a barrier. So what have you guys found in that process? Well, I think for us, particularly in the, the current setting, uh, when I got there, we're three, four months into COVID. Uh, we were, you know, we started out with just a book study on Zoom. And I just thought, okay, at the end of each study, I'm going to introduce one particular different way to do church. Um, this, uh, the current church, we had the gift of desperation. Uh, if it wasn't there before COVID, it was certainly there once COVID hit. And so uh, as we looked at those fresh expressions, dinner church, recovery, messy church, um, uh, there were others, and just uh, kind of rolled that out, fresh expressions was beyond the paradigm. <laughs> and so mm -hmm. it was that just kind of flew over, over their heads. It just... They had not experienced anything like that, and the idea it was too much. So, an idea like Messy Church, it it connected with their DNA, which was they they saw themselves as a church that had always connected with youth and children as kind of a suburban church, and uh, and that had fallen away over the last ten years in particular, and COVID kind of really uh, was the the final sucker punch on that. And so uh, it matched up to the DNA. Um, it could be done on the campus. So they were comfortable with that. I kind of described it as VBS meets dinner church, which I know the messy church people probably wouldn't, wouldn't sign on to fully, but uh, they understood VBS. They'd been doing that for a long time. Uh, they could somewhat understand it. So it, it was within the realm of possibility. And we had assets there. We had a beautiful gymnasium. Uh, at that time, we had a, a person that prepared meals for us. So a lot of the assets we had matched up. It matched up to the DNA, and it was the, the easiest path forward to start something new. Find something that they can identify with, they can see themselves doing, and then go about doing that. And so, um, and then from that, in that same study, you know, somebody comes to me and says, hey, we ought to do recovery. And I said, hold on, we can only do one big thing at a time. Uh, and two and a half years later, we started Recovery Church. And uh, we did that on our campus. Uh, again, we had a different part of our campus that that seemed to fit with that. And um, and so there, those have been things for us. Uh, but I just preached in a sermon on Sunday talking about, okay, we've been doing these things on campus. You know, the next step is to, to go, to go, <laughs> to step off campus and find ways to connect with people that never will come on our campus. Um, but even, yeah, we're in the Bible Belt, so people have a little more openness to church maybe than other places. Um, and so there is some willingness to come on on our campus. They certainly come on our campus for trunk or treat and, and 
other type of, uh, you know, these uh, activities that that uh, they see as a benefit to their family or, or connecting. And and so for for us, it's it's not as huge an impediment as maybe it is for others. But we and and we reach people through messy church and recovery and single parents that we would never reach through our traditional offerings. Mm-hmm. But we also know there are a lot of people out there that won't come on our campus. And so that's kind of a next step for us as we continue to mature and grow in our efforts. Yeah, and just kind of piggybacking on what Brett said, and I know one of the dinner churches that he started at a previous um, congregation is still rolling strong today and um, a, like really a culture changer for that congregation. Um, there's there's pros and cons to both. Um, <clears throat> so doing a fresh expression out in a third place, the pros of that is there's a lot of people that are just never going to come and into a church building because of traumas and um, stereotypes and all kinds of things that that's a big bridge to cross. So doing them in neutral, common places. The cons to that can be my person of peace goes away, right? The manager of the store I've been eating burritos in, or the uh, we have that kind of shift happening right now. Uh, the the tattoo parlor changes ownership or something. COVID shut down literally all the third places we were meeting in. So that was a struggle and challenge, a lot of relationship. Um, so there's benefits both ways. But then in it, doing them in inherited space, it well, as Brett said, you know, does it align with the values of the congregation? And is our pl- is our church already a kind of a third place in the community? So it is a lot about the culture of the church. So I've served in rural places where we we were the only third place. There was no other options. So we could own that and we could do a lot of things. We did tailgate church and blessing of the hunters and all these different things right at that rural church. Um, but for instance, like at St. Mark's, it was really easy for us to look at what do we already do like Brett did. So we have lots of AANA meetings all around the clock every day. Simple start a dinner church in between the 530 AA meeting and the eight o'clock AA meeting, right? We have a food pantry that's massive. We serve a couple hundred families a week. They already come to our campus to get food and to be part of that, you know, no brainer, you know, dinner church. Our church is also a little different because it is a shelter. Uh, it is a program for men experiencing homelessness. It's recovery housing. So we have literally men living on in our church building and then their families are connected to that. And so then there's this whole, our church kind of is a third place. So it's not hard to do yoga church there or to do our dinner church there or, or our recovery church there. But we also have a mix of things that are happening out uh, in the community because there are people that, that if it's at a church building, right, and there, there's a there's a church sign in front of the building, they're not going to come. So mm-hmm. I think I, I just echo what Brett said. There has to be an ecology and a mix of kind of both and doing doing that. And we really could utilize our space so much better. Uh, uh, just speaking to my tribe, the United Methodists. We have these very important buildings, huge resource, and some of them we use for an hour a week. And for me, mm-hmm. there there's a struggle with that, right? Because I got people sleeping out in the retention pond um, in tents. And here I am, I have a building that's only used for an hour a week. And that, that to me, I, I don't think Jesus is okay with that. I think he'd rather see people... 
living in his church building than than just have spaces that are reserved for. And I get that in some places that that's really maybe not won't work. And I understand that, but we can definitely do more stuff with our space. Well, and I think the bigger factor is are your people building relationships in the community? Because we had a gentleman come to recovery a few weeks ago, said this is the first time he had been on the campus of a church. He didn't put it that way, but he had been Mm -hmm. to a church in 20 years. Um, But he came because somebody in the recovery opportunity invited him, you know, and that's, I think if we're, we're building those relationships out there and people trust us, then that invitation uh, can still work. And we have, uh, for instance, with messy church, you know, we will email if we, if we gain people's email through a reservation, we've had some people, we will email every month, three times because we email three times out the week of the event. So some people get 50 emails from us before they finally show up. But part of that relationship is them looking at that email 50 times of what's being offered. And over time, I think part of that is they build trust because they see, you know, we've had their email and we haven't abused it. We haven't tried to sell them something. You know, they just keep looking at what we're offering and at some point, um, they come to it. I mean, it's it's part of that old attractional model, but in some ways it still works. But the key is it's not going to reach everybody. So we've got to do both. I think it's back to the blended ecology, even in the different ways that we do things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Brett. Yeah, I, that was, go I was going to say that was one of the questions that we were going to talk about was how um, this blended ecology with traditional churches and with fresh expressions that create and exist in that ecosystem Um, so I would love to hear you talk a little bit more about, maybe give a little definition if you want to, Brett, of what the blended ecology is, and then what does that look like for your community? I got to give a definition in front of the guy who wrote the book. (laughs) Yeah, it was like a challenge, a challenge in front of the teacher. (laughs) So, uh, for us, uh, it's just that idea of, uh, you know, uh, blending together different forms or, or, uh, varieties or however you want to say it, strategies of, of church. Uh, you know, we've got the established church, the inherited church, however you want to refer to that. Uh, for us, it's a church that's been there for 62 years. And then how do we uh, blend in these fresh expressions of church? Um, over time, I've learned that it's a whole lot easier to build parallel structures <laughs> that weave and, 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 uh, and work with the established rather than coming into the established and trying to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Uh, I have the scars mm-hmm. on my back to prove that doesn't work very well. And so uh, I have uh, learned uh, that uh, to, to handle these uh, with a softer touch, a little more grace, and, uh, and really try if, uh, if we can set some of these uh, kind of, I, I would call them parallel uh, communities of faith, like messy church or recovery or whatever it might be, uh, alongside the established church, and the established church is deeply involved in participating and serving and, and building community within uh, the, the fresh expression or the, the parallel community of faith. Um, and then at times, 
uh, that parallel community of faith is connecting with the traditional and they work back and forth. And the beauty is when it all works together. And when you can and see that, for instance, we had a family that had been attending our traditional worship service for three months, and I just never gotten the opportunity to say, hey, how did you originally hear about us? And uh, they had a young baby and they said, oh, when I finally got a chance to ask that question, they said, oh, well, we saw the uh, we saw Messy Church on Meetup and we just thought it'd be really cool to go to a church that offered something like that. So here was, you know, we, we were trying to attract people to Messy Church. They had a young baby, probably not the appropriate time for that but they love the idea of a church that would do something like that. So, you know, when those things can all work together, the, the, the few times that the person goes from messy church or recovery and shows up at worship or shows up in the kids program or does those type of things. Uh, and, you know, it, and they participate and, you know, when it goes both ways and all of the different things work together, you know, that's really, I think the power of, of what this can be. For us, these uh, communities of faith that we're developing are um, a key part of our discipleship strategy as well. So um, our people serving in these ways, I am not anti-Bible study, or uh, you know, but for so long we've defined discipleship as sit in a classroom, take disciple 34 and then 35 and 36, not against disciple. It's done wonders and wonderful things. But at times, you know, we can become career Bible study people that never go out and serve. And so uh, for us, you know, we, we still do Bible studies, but serving in these capacities and in these ways, you know, this opens up new opportunities for people to serve. And when they do, they come alive. And uh, I've got a couple people in recovery, uh, in our recovery ministry right now that were not overly involved in other parts of the church. And now they're running the recovery and they've just come alive in ways that I had not seen before. Uh, same thing, you know, with, with Messy Church. We've got a woman now that uh, came through our fresh expression in a city park called Eat, Pray, Play, um, which was kind of a parallel. Uh, you know, that was one of those times we went out in the community with our messy church. Uh, she came through there to messy church, and now she is one of the leaders of our single parent ministry. So, you know, it's all of these things, uh, you know, it's a mix and, and, uh, you know, it all, when it, when they all work together, you know, it's just a beautiful thing. Brett, that was kind of my follow-up on, on that. Um, by the way, that was an A plus, um, uh, response to the blended ecology. Well done. Um, <laughs> so the, the next question was around, how do you see the inherited church experience forms of revitalization? And you already started to name that some about the unleashing of lay people who are coming alive and following Jesus and people who are kind of connecting back into the life of the inherited church that would have not been connected to it. So as you are doing this over the course of years, are there any other ways where you see the church kind of coming back to life? Or I know revitalization is a term that 
maybe it might not even be that helpful because it talks about something that was vital right. now becoming vital again. And some in some cases, maybe there hasn't been vitality for beyond living memory, maybe. But um, so maybe there's a different way to frame that. But what ways are you seeing these churches kind of culture change and new life and maybe a better way is to talk about death and resurrection and remissioning these congregations? Yeah, the I, I think the coming alive part I, I've talked about in in my time in ministry, I'm often sent to churches where the glory days is far in the rearview mirror. And so uh, and numerical growth in worship attendance and things like that. There were many years where we stayed steady and I felt like it had been a Herculean effort and we had done something amazing to just keep even. Um, and But vitality, I mean, that you can sense. And when people are, you know, everybody wants to win. When people feel like that uh, the church is reaching out, reaching new people, uh, and, uh, you know, that, one of the things we struggle with is, you know, our church is reaching more new people than we probably have in a decade plus. Now, that doesn't, you know, we're holding steady on worship attendance. Um, you know, we, we, like many people, have financial, you know, it's, it's uh, we're not, um, you know, we're Struggling is probably not the right word, but it's always, a, you know, we always pray hard. You know, it's, 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 but, you know, when you look at vitality in, in some of the old metrics of money's going up, attendance is going up, uh, you know, all of those things, you know, I think today vitality is, is a metric that we can embrace and we can see and we can feel with that. So, um, you know, it's it's that idea. We we try to base things more in story. You know, tell I want to know the stories more than the the metrics. Now I'm you know I, I keep numbers, trust me, and we celebrate numbers and and they're all over the place. Uh, but for me, the the real things that get me excited and quite honestly. You know, when I report numbers, most people, you know, they're like, okay. But when we tell a story of life change or connection, then that's when when people really get excited. Uh, and yeah, you know, I use the example of we had a, a newer attender to our church who came and served at Messy Church. We had a young girl that uh, had a brain injury when she was uh, two or three years old, and here she is now in middle school age and. And she needs one-on-one -on -one attention the entire time for messy church. That's two hours. And this woman says, I'll do it. I feel called by God to do this. And, you know, when you see her interacting with this girl for that time, and to me, that's what it's all about. You've got the servant who's being transformed by, the, the, uh, by serving as Christ. And then you have the person being served, being transformed by that love that they receive. And those are the types of things that just get me really excited about what's happening in the vitality of all of these things. And yes, we can talk about, well, we have 40 or 50 people there every time. And, uh, you know, we're, if you put all these programs together, then 
the number of new people who are coming on our campus, uh, you know, that, that all gets exciting, but it's really the stories of life change and transformation. Um, and, you know, when that happens, that vitality goes up. And, uh, you know, while the, the end of the year report may not always uh, shine in the way that it did 20 years ago, uh, you know, the life transformation meter, I think, uh, if we could put numbers on that, we'd be better off. But, uh, you know, those stories help us to, to gauge that, as well as just the overall feeling of being in the building or on the campus or engaged in these programs uh, where, you know, we meet Christ through these new people. Yeah, I love that idea, like the if we could change our metric, if we could measure those kinds of things, like the transformative power of what your church or community is up to. And the fact that it's not just new people that are being transformed, but it's also the folks that have been in the church since day one, you know, who have been a part of it, who are, um, I, I, who maybe were, they kind of, yeah, lost that, also needed that um, transformation within themselves. And creating things like purpose and connection um, and giving people, or I think like the idea of discipleship, when you give a person like a responsibility, it creates a reason for them to want to explore their own kind of spirituality and things like that more because they start to think, well, why do I believe in this? Why do I care about this? If I'm being asked to share it with somebody else, I need to really investigate that. And so it creates a space where there can be so much growth and so much, um, yeah, so much healing that can also happen in that process. Even to and let's be honest, if you're doing the same, the you know, if you're doing the same thing you've always done, the way you've always mm -hmm. done it, um, either those people are worn out by it, or they never engaged it in the first place, and there's no new opportunities mm -hmm. for them to come alive. And so, you know, these types of things, uh, you know, we're we try very hard to to expand the participation. Um, we provide all sorts of ways to be, you know, if there are people that won't show up to an activity with people they don't know, but they can bake cookies for it. They can pray for it. Um, they can cut out the arts and crafts shapes that we need cut out in advance. Um, you know, we want to find ways to get as many people doing something involved in it with the hopes that that's moving them forward you know, we talk about discipleship for us is inwardly becoming more like Jesus and outwardly living more like Jesus. And, you know, people have to act to do those things. It takes action, it takes participation with God's grace. And so, you know, if we, we can start even in the smallest way, um, as well as organizationally, you know, the old saying, if people are rowing the boat, they're less likely to rock the boat. So, um, you know, we want everybody engaged and involved in it. I like that. I like that one. I got to write it down. <laughs> Keep people yeah. rowing on the boat. Then they won't be rocking it. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> on that on that note, you know, if you do something once, maybe it was a lucky, you know, shot out of a cannon. Do it twice. There's probably some significance do it three times, you know, in three consecutive congregations, you're probably onto something, right? That that you have found a way. Um, and I know you've just rolled out some new resources on the gift of desperation. You've been doing some coaching on that. And 
sharing some webinars and stuff around the connection on trying to teach those things. For one, could you say more about that, uh, those tools that you've created and kind of your process with the gift of desperation stuff? And then I'd be really interested to know, um, do you think there is application and what you've created and what you're offering um, in the midst of disaffiliation? So uh, we're doing this interview right now. I know that in your conference on Saturday, y'all had a lot of churches, 300, was it plus? 261. Okay, yeah. 261. Go, getting up close to 300. The disaffiliated, right? And that doesn't just affect those congregations, but it affects the whole system. It freezes appointments and makes less opportunity for clergy. And people leave because their church didn't disaffiliate. And then that, you know, I know you've experienced that in your own church, but so talk about those resources you've created. And then do you think that there's some ways that those things could be applied in the midst of what some call, you know, uh, disaffiliation deserts and just the whole trauma around that? Well, recently as, uh, yeah, I hit the 20 year mark as a pastor and I've always done trainings for my district and conference uh, through the years, uh, so, but I've been trying to feeling like, okay, I'm now moving from the the practitioner maybe to the uh, to being the guide or, or trying to pass on what others have passed on to me because I've greatly benefited from mentorships with people like you and and so many others through the years and wanting to to pass some of that on and and as you said, I've had the the benefit of uh, a good little run here on a few opportunities. We failed on on other things as well, but that's all part of the process. And, and so I, I sat down and I said, okay, well, what's the, you know, how did this work? Um, some of this, you know, I, I've tried, uh, some of it's maybe comes naturally. Uh, but then as I look back, you know, I didn't always do it in the same order in the same way or with the same grace. Uh, but what are those common threads of ways that I went into congregations that, uh, you know, that that most of them were, uh, I think, had some hope, as most congregations do when they get a new pastor, that, uh, you know, that we can try some new things and have some new vitality. And um, uh, not everybody has that feeling, certainly, but uh, and I've used this term gift of desperation uh, in just talking about the things that we did. Um, in uh, particularly uh, in this uh, current setting, to, because of COVID and the connection to to uh, just the age and stage and, and place of, of the congregation, and so it opened them up to try some new things and do some different things. And so that's where you know I said, well, you know, what's what's been the secret here, or how have I have I gone about this? And uh, kind of came up with a, a six action uh, that, uh, as I said, it wasn't always done in the same order, but it tended to be the things uh, that that I would do. Prayer was a huge part of that, uh, trying to get an organized effort to storm the gates of heaven and, uh, you know, uh, stir us all up uh, through the power uh, of prayer. Uh, beyond that, uh, it, you've got to find your people, find the people whose eyes light up in the congregation and get excited about things. Uh, from there, you've got the leaders, the leader and the leaders uh, have got to have consistent and constant passionate energy 
Uh, that was something I was just gifted with, I think, from from birth. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's it's easy to you get knocked down a few times or you do you have that feeling of desperation or doesn't seem to be going right. It's easy to, to just lose all that passion or, or, or get it beat out of you, <laughs> and quite honestly, and, and, uh, by some people. But you got to have that passionate energy. From there, you've got to have a relentless attention and focus on the mission. Uh, we can do a lot of good things, but, you know, are we reaching people for Christ? Are we making a difference? Um, you've got to just try some stuff. Just do something as fast as you can. And then you also want to plan for some long-term, bigger steps down the road. So as I look back over uh, starting new things and doing different things, kind of those six actions were consistent um, within that, even though I didn't have it all written down on a piece of paper. Uh, and uh, But now I do, <laughs> and I'd love to help others uh, who are at a point where, uh, you know, they, they feel like they just don't know how to take the next step forward. And I think that's where, uh, you know, part of the reason that, that I got to, to writing this down is because the feelings I had in the midst of all this disaffiliation and, and denominational strife and uh, mess that, that was going on. And, you know, feeling kind of frozen in this, uh, you know, we've I, we've all been dealing with this for five to 10 years. And, you know, we can say, don't be distracted by it. I, I said time and time again, we're going to stay focused on our mission. We're going to make disciples until the day comes that something needs to be done if it needs to be done and all of that. Um, but it can wear on you. And it has, I think, on on all of us. As you said, our congregation, even though we didn't vote, um, has been uh, what I would call significantly impacted uh, with some of the fallout and the different things of that decision. And so it's, uh, you know, for leaders, it can just be exhausting. Uh, it can be defeating. And, and I think it does drive many of us um, to the point of desperation. I mean, we not only have denominational uh, struggles, we have just the church in the world, in the United States at this moment. And I've said, you know, the denominational stuff is the least of our worries. Uh, when you look at the grander scheme of, of what we're dealing with uh, in our mission field uh, here in the United States. And so uh, from that, uh, you know, I, I think, or my hope is that, uh, you know, where I can, I can be helpful to people that, uh really are exhausted, stuck, um, frozen, feel like, you know, they just can't, you know, kind of stuck in the mud, running in place, whatever it might be. You know, what's the next step? How do we take that uh, and, uh, you know, need some encouragement on that, need a path forward, need somebody to walk alongside them, whatever it might be to, uh, to really get moving forward. Uh, because, uh, you know, desperation is not new to the church. Look throughout the Bible. Um, and desperation can be a good thing if it propels us to positive action. And so, uh, you know, if there, you don't, the old thing, you don't want to waste a crisis. There are things you can do in a crisis that you can't do other times. Uh, and, uh, you know, there are, uh, I would argue maybe that uh, there's a lot more churches that should be desperate that aren't. 
and their their refusal to be desperate is holding them back. Uh, and so I think uh, you know if uh, that it, if we can you know kind of get unstuck through a willingness to imagine what God could do if, if just take a small group of people who are desperate enough to do whatever it takes. Uh, you know, that's the, the old thing, you know, give me, give me a handful of people willing to storm the gates of hell with water pistols. I mean, let's get going. And how do we, how do we do that? And um, so uh, through, through trial and error, you know, I've, I've found some ways to do that and just, uh, you know, would hope if I can be helpful, would love to, to be helpful in that way as I continue to try to do it myself. Right. It's a process. So it's going to always be evolving, but it reminds me one of my um, professors in my MDiv program, he's an ethicist and he works a lot in the realm of um, Latin American liberation theology, um, Miguel de la Torre. And one of the things he's developed is called this theology of hopelessness. And it's basically exactly that, that when people are desperate, they act because there's no other choice. And it, thinking about what the opposite of that is, is being hopeful and then waiting for something to happen, but not making, taking any action to make it happen. Um, and so I think about what you're up to and, and that idea that like desperation can lead to some really incredible things because people realize like, I can't wait for people to show up at my, at the front door of my church. I can't just keep yeah. doing what I'm doing and think that the culture around me is going to change or that the political climate or whatever it is, is going to somehow flip around and then everyone's going to run into our church buildings on the Sunday morning, you know, um, 1950 is coming back. Yeah. It's all good. It's all going to come right back. Right. Well, that makes me think too of that revitalizing. Maybe we don't need to be in you doing these re things. We need to be thinking forward. Reimagine. Um, reimagine. Re reimagine. I like that. A new, a new way forward, a different way, a fresh way, maybe. Um, and then he, he, another thing he talks about is kind of um, messing with the system. He uses other words for that. But it made me think about this idea that we talk about with um, holy mischief and how sometimes uh, fresh expressions practitioners, we kind of, um, people get, uh, you know, we break the rules sometimes or decide to just go for it um, without maybe going through whatever some a proper channel might be, or we didn't have as many meetings as other, you know, outreach communities or missions did, you know, we just go and we do it and make it happen. Um, but I think that's part of it too, right? Because if you just wait, even when you're desperate, sometimes it'll be too late. You wait for this opportunity to happen, wait for the perfect timing for this, wait for the right kind of this or that to happen. And sometimes it's just, you just have to take those people that have that bit of energy, that bit of desperation, some instances who want to act and you walk with them and you act. Yeah. Former CEO, David Novak talks about shocking the system, uh, that you got to mm -hmm. shock the system sometimes uh, disoriented a little bit. And then uh, I think Todd Bolsinger talks about, you know, then our job is putting it back together once we've blown it up uh, as, as the change dynamics with that. But, you know, we've had failures that have turned into success. In my last uh, church, uh, that dinner church that was highly successful, well, you know, before that was a failed endeavor at a bar and wing place. 
that we learned that we hadn't gotten the laity involved in ownership of that. And so it started great, but it dwindled. Well, we learned from that, that failure that, you know, we shot and killed it as quick as we could once we saw it wasn't going to work. But from that, then we took a group of laity through six months of prayer walking and dinner church book study, and then launched what became a very successful dinner church. Um, We look at the, the eat, pray, play that we did in the city park. We did that twice. Um, The second time there was a brawl in the park while we were there. Uh, And we said, oh, this is a failure. We only had three new families come over two times and there was a brawl and everybody's scared and that's a failure. But out of that, one person came to Messy Church the next month at our church That person then went to the kids program, then became a part of the worship because the relationship they built with somebody in Messy Church. They went to our senior, senior adult Sunday school class, which they are not. They're a different race and a different age than everybody in that class, but they still go to that class because of the relationship they made with the Messy Church person. Um, scares me. I'm, I'm, I'm like, why are you going to the, that class? Doesn't fit you at all. Um, and then now that person's leading our single parents thing. Um, another family of the three that was at that showed up at our messy church and has come multiple times a year after that. So what looked like, a, you know, something we tried two times that was a big failure has provided two families to us. You know, so mm-hmm. looking back, it doesn't look so much, so much like a failure. And so, and I'm sure if I thought through it, I would see that a lot of our experiments that we would, that we quickly judged failures led to later successes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think everybody that does fresh expressions has stories like that. And I mean, it points to, the willingness that a lot of people have to just to do, try it and to do those new things. I think about, we had um, our first ever um, conference that we did for, we call it rural church rising. We just had that at the end of October and it was really great. But um, I keep thinking about how uh, Bishop Berlin, Tom Berlin, he spoke. And one of the biggest things was his advice was like, just do it. There's no reason to, to, you know, you don't have to think and plan and plan. You can just go and try and see what happens. And I think that when, especially when, even if it's a, you know, you said you met two times, but in that time um, when you were meeting, you uh, invested into those relationships, the people that helped to organize it, they were there, they were authentic, they connected with people. And that was enough to create some really vital relationships that ended up being a big part of your community later on. And it got us out of the building. Mm-hmm. Into yeah. the brawls of our community. <laughs> mm, yeah, yeah, that makes me think, Michael, of your church um, or your whole your whole district doing the prayers out in the going out into the community and having people pray for people, and how you saw so many people who were a little bit who were weirded out by the idea of fresh expressions, or were like, "Why are we doing this? It's a Sunday. We need to be in church," and it completely changed their point of view just by walking through their neighborhood, going through a public park, and meeting people and shaking their hands and praying for them. Yeah. It makes me think, Brett, um, that maybe you just gave us a new metric for what success looks like in the 21st century. 
Like if you haven't almost been endangered by a fist fight brawl in a public place, then you're not following Jesus. <laughs> Amen. Yeah. I love that. And I think we uh, try to think of a good way to say this. Yeah. Yeah. I think that a lot of times as leaders who maybe enjoy or feel comfortable in these type of settings or taking Christ beyond our buildings. I think a lot of times we, you know, we think that's just natural for everybody. And, you know, as you were talking about Piper there, those baby steps to, to move for some people, those are not baby steps. They are gigantic steps forward in their discipleship. Uh, for someone that's never beyond, you know, engaged Jesus beyond the sanctuary, uh, that can be really, really big. And sometimes, you know, as leaders that want to get 40 miles down the road, we can dismiss that as, you know, no big deal. Or, you know, can we just hurry up and get to the next 14 steps and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, sometimes we got to slow walk it and uh, that drives people like me crazy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, I'm a hundred mile an hour all the time type of person. But, uh, you know, that's it. the old thing. If you're leading and you turn around and nobody's behind you, you're not leading. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good one, too. Yeah. Sometimes we get I think our priorities can even. Well, I think the priority is there, which is people are driven to because they care about people and they want to create this great space where there can be spiritual renewal and connection and all those things, but they have to understand the context and the world that they live in. Um, and so that can be hard because you have to switch your mindset, which is something we talked about earlier. Uh, so we have um, just a little bit of time left. So I wanted to ask this question that we always ask um, everybody. So for you, Brett, what does the future of the church look like and what is your hope? Uh, as I say, every time I go to a new church, uh, my crystal ball broke in the move. Uh, so I'm not sure that I can uh, tell you what the future holds. Uh, and quite honestly, I've quit trying to figure it out. I'm just trying to live into it moment by moment and uh, feel like I hope that God is leading us wherever we're headed. <laughs> and uh, it's uh, you know, the old thing where a lot of businesses have stopped even doing the five-year plan because we're not even sure what's going to happen next week, let alone five years from now. Uh, but hope, I would say the hope is the, the same as it's always been. And that that's that there will be people, uh, you know, the body of Christ, called the church that will continue to connect people to Jesus and will continue to help people to inwardly become and outwardly live more like Jesus. I mean, that my hope is that, that we will, uh, you know, uh, us included, but far beyond ourselves that, um, you know, that people will still make, be making disciples. Uh, I, you know, I'm not so, uh, uh, you know, so caught up in the way we've always done it. Um, I, you know, I, it, it, 
It doesn't have to look like it did 30 years ago or what it looks like today uh, for me to necessarily be comfortable with it. Uh, and I imagine it probably won't always be my thing uh, as I age as well. So, uh, but my hope is that, uh, you know, that as there have always been people that have heard the call of Christ and have answered it and are, are out there, you know, serving the Lord and connecting people to Jesus. That's my hope that that continues on, or, or maybe my greater hope is that Jesus comes back tomorrow and we can be done with all this. <laughs> Hmm. Amen. So, Brett, tell our um, tell our listeners where they can learn more about you, where they can keep up with what you're doing. Uh, what's what are the best best places to find you and connect with you? Uh, my website is brettdehart.com, which you can probably figure out the spelling based off of uh, this episode or the title of this episode. Uh, just dot uh, com, or uh, we also have an easier way uh, might be giftofdesperation dot church, giftofdesperation dot church, and uh, that's just uh, got resources on there. You can go on there. Uh, I've got uh, three ebooks that are on Kindle, but if you email me, I will send them all to you at no charge. Or go on my website; you can uh, get plenty of the free resources there. Um, just looking to be helpful in any way uh, that I can. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks so much. This is really great. Yeah. Thank you. It's fun. Yeah. I appreciate you for being here. Any closing thoughts you want our viewers, our listeners to know? Wow. Just that the Gators are a better football team than the Florida State. <laughs> no way. Oh. You're two against one here. <laughs> two against one. Tallahassee represent. Yes. <laughs> uh, no, yeah. I just, uh, I, I would encourage people uh, through all of it. Uh, you know, we're not the first to have uh, to come through a tough season. Uh, read the Bible, read church history. Um, and uh, that's easier said than done. I know because I'm right there with you. Uh, and uh, some days are better than others and, and all of that. But, uh, the, the repeatedly what comes to me is uh, that God's got this, that, uh, you know, that, that maybe it's not all falling apart. Maybe that it's all falling together and, uh, you know, yeah. that uh, we're, we're in this time and it's the time that we were chosen to be in. And, um, you know, let's uh, keep at it with enthusiasm uh, the spirit within us and, and just keep going and then, you know, one foot in front of the other and uh, try to, to follow the spirit where it leads. And that's, uh, that's what I'm trying to do day in and day out. Great. Well, thank you again. Thanks for being here. Absolutely. Yeah. And to those listening, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of new people, new ways. If you enjoyed our conversation with Brett, please share it with a friend. And to connect with us and to learn more about Fresh Expressions, you can check out freshexpressionsfl.org and find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. See you next time on New People, New Ways.